My dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you've given us your word, that we can find uh, information that you've seen fit to give us. Uh, we thank you that you've given us minds capable of understanding language, capable of communicating with you, and understanding your recorded word even centuries and millennia after it was written. Lord, we pray for insight and understanding. We want to think your thoughts after you. We don't want to design our own meaning and our own understanding of the text, but rather we seek to understand how you intended it to be understood. So Lord, grant us that as we go through the study tonight and uh, look at one of the foundational covenants in Scripture, the Mosaic Covenant, given to your people, the Jews, and given as a rule of life. We thank you, Lord. Uh, you've recorded this for us, and uh, we pray that you help us understand how we can then go forward and apply that to ourselves as the church. Lord, we pray all these things in your wonderful and glorious name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> all right. So as mentioned, tonight we are looking at the Law of Moses, which is our covenant, but the fourth foundations. Uh, in the first foundations episode, we looked at two covenants the Adamic Covenant and the Edenic Covenant, which uh, covers all the time before the fall and then after the fall until Noah, when the Noahic Covenant was established with Noah to govern life after the flood. Uh, and then we were given the Abrahamic Covenant with Abraham that included promise not to the whole world, but for the very first time, to a unique nation. And if we remember correctly, God pulled that nation out of the other nations that had rebelled at Babel so that he could protect the line that Christ would come through, so that he could protect the oracles of God, the written scriptures, uh, and that they would not be lost, such as history has been lost uh, to a large degree in the, the growth of the nations outside of Israel. So tonight, we turn our eyes towards the Mosaic Covenant uh, after 430 years of the Jews in Egypt. Uh, we come back to that culture and see how God handled, handled them as his covenanted people. But first, we want to remind ourselves of a theme that we saw pop up in the very first covenant because we are returning to it uh, really in full force. And that's the, the theme of the theocratic administrator. Theocratic administrator is a very important theme, not only for our purposes, uh, studying Revelation, because Revelation gives us the final conclusion uh, to this need of a theocratic administrator. Uh, but it also is very important throughout these covenants, because the Mosaic Covenant is... Uh, is God's partial restoration of the theocratic kingdom to the earth, and as such needs an administrator over it, and God pulls Moses out to be that administrator. But I want to first make a distinction uh, between the universal kingdom and the kingdom that God gave man theocratic administration over. So in Job 38, uh, we, the universal kingdom over which God is sovereign, has always been sovereign, and always will be sovereign. This kingdom has never been in question whose it is. It has always been the Lord's. 
So in Job 38, we read, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements, do you know? Or who stretched the lines on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? So when God is contending with Job, uh, he reminds Job that he, God, is sovereign over the entire universe, that he was there before the kingdom which we occupy was even created. We see that God also is the creator of this sub-kingdom of the earth. We read in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. They are distinct from God's dwelling place. They existed after he did. Uh, God had no beginning and has no end. Over that universal eternal kingdom, uh, God has always ruled and to this day rules. But in the creation of this earth and the heavens, he chose a sub-ruler who would rule on his behalf, but had to maintain obedience to him in order to be qualified to rule. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we read God discuss discussing among the Trinity his intent to put a ruler over this kingdom. We read, then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. This is the first verse where we see this concept of a theocratic administrator, who is God's viceroy uh, over this creation, over this earth. Uh, God is intended to be the ruler of this administrator, and this administrator is to rule over the earth on his behalf. This commission was given to man directly from the mouth of God. So God gave man not only the ability to understand language, but to communicate, even from the very first day he was created. And the purpose for that is very intentional because God didn't put man on this earth simply to exist, uh, but rather he did give him a task and a duty from the very beginning. So these are the first words recorded of God towards man. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the commission of the theocratic administrator to rule over God's creation in the way that God instructs them to rule. The problem enters the narrative here when man fails to rule as God intends him to rule, but rather allows creation to rule over him and allows the words of another to, to be his guide rather than God's words to be his guide. It's failing to have faith in God's promises, in God's instruction, and choosing instead another God for himself. 
And that temptation, of course, came through Satan saying, you can be as God, you can be your own gods. But in so doing, they submitted to the words of Satan rather than submitting to the words of God, and therefore put Satan over themselves as the ruler of this earth, rather than themselves ruling over this earth for God. So God had to uh, hand down punishment, but also a recognition of the very real uh, existence and entrance of sin into creation for the first time. Now, sin and disobedience, uh, none of these were created by God, but rather these are the, the distortions of sin, uh, which enters through man. So God created earth perfect, and through our disobedience, through our unfaithfulness, sin then enters into the picture. And it doesn't have an effect only on, on ourselves, but it has an effect on the generations to come. Uh, and it also has an effect on the entire universe. We see, especially in the uh, in the uh, the curse given down to the man, that it not only affects his self, but also the the kingdom over which he ruled. So we read, then to Adam he said, "Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it." all the days of your life. So the woman was cursed uh, as the woman. The serpent was cursed as the serpent. But man was cursed here not only as man, but also as the ruler. And thus his kingdom was also cursed. Now, up to this point, man had not had uh, any progeny. Uh, this probably happened very soon after the creation. Some say on the same day, some say three days later, it's all postulating. But what we do know is that up until the point man ate from the tree, he was considered faithful to God. One of the, uh, the commands of God as the ruler of this earth was to fill the earth, to populate it with mankind. And so had they gone very long without having a child, at some point that would become disobedience. Um, so we know that there was not time yet to have children before the fall. So it probably happened relatively early on. Uh, so that uh, we see that Adam and Eve's first child, Cain, was born under the curse. And that's important because we read that this principle through chapter 1 and chapter 2, but also chapter 3 of Genesis that a seed bears fruits of the same kind. So Adam, being a sinful man, can only bear fruit that bears that image of the curse, that bears the reality of the curse within it. So Adam can only bear a sinful man. So the line of kings that God established on the earth with Adam was corrupted from the very beginning by the lie of the serpent and the choice to follow another's words over God's. And so this kingdom was usurped, and it was usurped by Satan, as man put Satan's words above him rather than God's words above him. And we read in Job 1, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth, 
and walking around on it. So we see that Satan does have a physical and spiritual presence on this earth. He is called the ruler of this world in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4. And as that ruler, he is able to bind those who are part of his kingdom. We read, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So from the very beginning, from the very earliest records we have in Job uh, chapter 1, up until uh, the established uh, apostolic area, era, uh, even prior to about 60 AD here in 2 Corinthians, we see that Satan is considered the god of this world. In fact, Satan, when speaking with Jesus in, uh, during the temptation in the wilderness, we see that Satan offers Jesus all the kingdoms of this earth if Jesus would submit himself to Satan. Now, Jesus does not tell Satan that he doesn't have the authority to hand over the kingdoms of this earth, but rather he says this is not the way in which he will receive them. He will receive them by being disobedient to God, but rather through his obedience to God. So we read, and he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So this is very important as we go from the, the failure of Adam as the theocratic administrator over this earth to the success of Jesus Christ in proving to be a faithful steward of God's over the creation we see the first Adam and the second Adam, or the last Adam, rather, and that last Adam will, will successfully rule over this kingdom, and that kingdom is yet to be established here on this earth, and it will be a physical rule of Jesus Christ serving in the role that Adam was intended to serve in but failed. But the first reinstitution of that uh, of theocratic administration we see a hint of in the Abrahamic covenant that we looked at last time. So in, in our foundation study, we're starting with the eight covenants that are foundational to scripture. Uh, we saw the first three, which are universal covenants, covenants that, uh, that pertain to all of mankind. And last time, about two months ago, we looked at the Abrahamic covenant, which was over the Jewish people only, only those of the physical line of Abraham. In that covenant, let's see, in that covenant, they were promised a land, seed, and blessing. Uh, we can read that promise in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. 
and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So we see in this promise to Abraham, there's both a spiritual promise, but there's also a very real physical promise given to him that he would possess the physical land through which he was, or to which the Lord was bringing him. This is later reestablished to his son Isaac and also to Jacob, uh, even given very specific boundaries that this physical land will be given to them. It's also promised to Sarah uh, that the land will be given to her descendants. So as we go through the Old Testament, we will see essentially the, the effort of this covenant, God's faithfulness towards it, as the Jews claim portions of it. But at this point in the Abrahamic promise, it's given to them simply as a promise, as a one-sided covenant. We could call an unconditional covenant that's given from God towards man with no conditions laid on it. Uh, the Mosaic covenant is going to come in and put a safeguard on that promise so that the promise is eternal, but it can't be possessed at an early time when Israel is not yet ready spiritually to possess it. The land covenant is also uh, restated in Genesis 15 when the covenant is actually ratified. So we read, and it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between the pieces. That's the pieces of, uh, of halved animals by which this near eastern, or let's see, uh, this ancient Near East Covenant was ratified. It's also called a Royal Grant Treaty, uh, which a king will grant uh, land or blessing to, uh, to an underling. So here the king, God, is granting this land and this blessing to Abraham. It says, on the, that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. We have to be careful against spiritualizing what the text does not allow to be spiritualized. This is given physical parameters, uh, almost every location that it's spoken about. And it's given a different set of physical parameters. It never depends on the same, uh, the same way of, of showing its, its parameters. Thus, we see in all those varied ways, whether it be from Egypt to the Euphrates or the land through which Abraham is going or the land of Canaan, which had definite borders, it's always given in the sense of a physical plot of land. A seed is also promised, says, then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, now look towards the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned, to him as, reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now this is also taken spiritually by a lot of theologians. And uh, consider this, there is no other way to express a literal physical seed than this but there are countless better ways to express a spiritual seed. Uh, there's 
simply no other way to interpret the physical promises given to Abraham other than a physical and specific plot of land in the Middle East and a physical line of descendants. Those physical line of descendants are important both in the history of this earth, today on this earth, and in the future. Uh, this, this, uh, this physical seat of Abraham is not the church. Uh, it has had believers as part of it, but it was first and foremost a nation through which God ruled uh, as a theocratic king. That is why we have uh, we recognize Israel as a theocracy, but the church is not a theocracy. Attempts to turn the church into the into a theocracy has led to terrible bloodshed, uh, especially looking at the Catholic Church, which rules as if it were a theocracy. Uh, this has led only to bad things when the church tries to usurp Israel's position as a theocracy because God ruled directly over uh, that land through his administrators, through the judges, and through the kings, and they were held responsible based on their faithfulness to the law, the covenant. And that law, that covenant, is not given to the church. The responsibility of a theocracy is also not given to the church, but rather they're under the law of Christ. Uh, that's, that's actually going to be the last few slides we look at, so I'll, I'll hold off on that for now. But when this covenant was given to Abraham, it was given to him as an unconditional promise, but his faithfulness to it was also tested. His faithfulness to it did not, uh, did not put into question whether or not these promises of God would be fulfilled, uh, but rather whether they would be fulfilled, uh, or rather when they would be fulfilled. So we read in Genesis 17 of the covenant fruitfulness says, I have made you exceedingly fruitful. God has already begun to give to Abraham the promises of the covenant. And I will make nations of you and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting position, and I will be their God. And here's the covenant responsibility for Abraham to enjoy uh, the blessings of that covenant. We read, we read, God said further to Abraham, now as for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. So this circumcision is to be done to children who are not yet old enough to understand the gospel. Uh, at this point, it was uh, always on the same basis of the saving work of God through a redeemer. 
but the content of faith at this point was only in the seed, the seed that God had promised that would eventually become the promised Redeemer, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But at this point, their promise is only that God will be their God, and he will be the God over their nation. They put faith in God that he will bring this about, and that uh, that faithfulness, the first instance of that faith, brings them into the saved people of God. But this circumcision doesn't bring them into the saved people of God. It brings them into the nation of Israel over which God would rule directly. So we see that every male must be circumcised, and that circumcision is a sign of the covenant, a physical rendering of God's promises to man that will serve as a reminder throughout the generations. Thus, a father, having done this to his son, will have that uh, that sign or that that Ebenezer, for lack of a better um, image, in order to establish that covenant, or rather to share that covenant that was given from God to his ancestors to pass that on well to his children, there is a physical sign of that spiritual reality. So we continue to read in the covenant responsibilities, uh, but an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Nowhere in this covenant unfaithfulness is eternal salvation in question, but rather enjoyment of God's physical promises on this earth. In the very same day, Abraham was circumcised and Ishmael his son. All the men of his household who were born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. So we see that enjoyment of these uh, covenant promises are intimately intertwined with covenant faithfulness. We read in Genesis 22 when Abraham shows the pinnacle of his faithfulness towards God's, uh, towards God's promises. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So here's a, a rendering of these different covenants and how they interact with one another. The Abrahamic covenant has as it, at its core the promise of a physical land, the promise of a physical seed, and the promise of blessing. Those three promises are going to be later amplified into three specific covenants given at different times. In Deuteronomy, just before the Joshua generation enters into the land, the Lord reestablishes the land covenant with them, amplifies it to show the more specifics of how he is going to bring that about in that generation. In the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, Israel has finally brought in the king of God's choosing in its, in its lesser uh, completion, David, through whom Jesus Christ would eventually come, who is the ultimate king of God's choosing. So in this Davidic covenant, it is established that David will be the line through which the Savior, the Messiah, uh, 
the the eternal seed will be established. So that covenant with David amplifies the seed promise. The new covenant is going to be the covenant which controls during the millennial kingdom. That is further amplified in Jeremiah 31, uh, when God gives man more information about how that final, uh, the final fulfillment of the blessing to the entire world that Israel, uh, Israel will be. So these three covenants are intertwined within the Abrahamic covenant, and they, they are realized at three different times. In fact, all three are finally completely realized during the kingdom, um, but they are brought into partial fulfillments. Fulfillment is even the best word. They're brought into, uh, into partial uh, pre-fulfillment uh, during the times in which they are reestablished. So the land covenant will be brought into its fullest historical, uh, uh, our fullest historical site of this was under Solomon, but even that was only a fraction of the land that was actually promised to the Jews. In fact, they have never received the full uh, promise of the land. That full promise of land will be given to them finally during the millennial kingdom. As well, the Davidic throne was promised to be eternal. And I mean, I, I don't know Naftali Bennett's history, but I don't think he's the seed of David. Um, in fact, that seed of David ended with Jesus Christ, who had no children. And uh, that, that son of David, Jesus Christ, will be the eternal ruler from the line of David, um, who sits on the throne of David in Jerusalem during the millennium and then hands the throne over to God and rules together at God's side for all of eternity. So we see that promise of the Davidic covenant of an eternal throne for David's line fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And the new covenant where God will put his word into the hearts of the Jews, that they will dwell with him as their God in the presence of them. Well, this came to Jeremiah around the time that the glory of God was departing from the temple uh, under Ezekiel uh, during the diaspora, the first diaspora of the Jews, where the glory of God, where he dwelled among his people, was departing, and it won't return until the millennial kingdom in that temple. So this new covenant is not able to be ratified until that temple is rebuilt and God is dwelling among his people, ruling over physical Jerusalem during the millennial kingdom. But we see that throughout all of this history of the Jewish nation, are given unconditional ownership of all of these promises through the Abrahamic covenant. But unlike Adam, who was given unconditional ownership of the kingdom of Eden, which he lost very quickly to Satan, God gives the Jews conditional enjoyment of these uh, promises. So I've likened this to owning a car versus having a driver's license to operate the car. You can own that car, but it sits in your garage waiting for the day you have a license that permits you to actually use that, uh, that blessing of car. Uh, the Mosaic Covenant is that driver's license, and uh, the Jews are very bad drivers. So each time that they are, uh, that they are brought under some sort of punishment for 
not being faithful to the covenant, they have a mark against their license. Now, the only difference here is under our laws, you can lose your license permanently. But God always offers this conditional enjoyment, this driver's license to the next generation of Jews. So that there will be in the future, in, in our future still, uh, a generation of Jews who will be faithful uh, to follow the one uh, the one mandate that will come under the land covenant we look at next time, which is to uh, to enthrone the king of God's choosing. And that was uh, their biggest failure under that was the rejection of Christ, who is the king of God's choosing and failed to put him over them as the king. Uh, but when they call him back as a nation, as their king, uh, that generation will enter into this final enjoyment of all three of the land, seed, and blessing covenants. Um, and that is yet future. That has never happened in all of history. 